This is Both Wonderful and Strange, a Twin Peaks podcast. My name is Chris Van Howe. This week, Amelia and I will be doing our recap of parts 9 and 10 of Twin Peaks The Return. These were two pretty fascinating follow-up episodes to the mind-blowing part 8, a more traditional narrative style, but still with a lot of great Lynchian flair, Lynchian violence, Lynchian humor. Pretty fun episodes, and I'm really excited to share my discussion with Amelia with you guys. Before we start, I wanted to bring up something that I was thinking about in the the television landscape. The date that episode 10 of Twin Peaks The Return aired was also the premiere, the season premiere of season seven of Game of Thrones. And Game of Thrones is the the television monolith of the moment. I'm an avid fan. Uh, one of my favorite shows of all time. Doesn't quite touch Twin Peaks on that level, but it is definitely in the top 10, at least, uh, if not the top five. And Game of Thrones is a show that has a legendary creator figure, George R. R. Martin, the author of these books. But an interesting thing has happened with Game of Thrones in that the television series has outpaced the books. So the the series itself is beyond the books. And I won't get into you know any specifics or spoilers or anything like that, but Martin specifically set out to write a story that was movie proof or television proof. And in the end, he sold his story to HBO and Benioff and Weiss, the creators and showrunners of the show. And it's had a pretty fascinating effect on the story. The creator of this story, of this incredible world, is not able to tell his story or wasn't able to tell it before the television show, the business of television, the need to keep pushing the story forward outpaced him. And it's a really interesting juxtaposition to Twin Peaks. Twin Peaks is a show that went away for 26 years. And yet Lynch and Frost never lost control of it. It never became somebody else's story. It was never commercialized into something else or, uh, you know, you could say that during season two of the original series, uh, it lost its way without those guys managing it. But now, 26 later, they still have full agency and control of their story, whereas George R.R. R. Martin does not. And it's a fascinating thing to think that would Lynch have ever dared to come back to Twin Peaks? Would he have been inclined to come back to Twin Peaks if someone else had pushed the story beyond what he and Frost wanted it to go beyond? I don't think that this is a, a critique of Martin at all, but just a really interesting comparison. I think these are the two best things on television right now, and the ownership of the story by the creator of the story is wildly different between the two. So with that, let's move along to my discussion of parts 9 and 10 with Amelia Van Howe. Thank you. 
am joined again by Amelia Van Howe. Welcome, Amelia. Hello. Hello. Today, you and I are going to be discussing parts 9 and 10 of Twin Peaks The Return. It's been a while since we've had a chance to talk. The show went on a hiatus after uh, putting part 8 into our heads, so it gave us a couple weeks to think about that, and uh, and then returned with uh, two pretty solid episodes. I don't know that anything will be as mind-blowing as, as part 8 was, but uh, these two episodes, I think, as a tandem, were pretty good. Uh, as a full disclosure, part 11 has already aired. I don't think too much of that will slip into this conversation, uh, but it might. Little odds and ends might. Uh, we, we've seen the future as far as uh, <laughs> this uh, this description. So if some things slip in, forgive us. Slight spoiler warning if you haven't seen part 11. But I imagine if you're listening to this when we post it, you probably have. So uh, before we begin a, a recap, Amelia, what were your thoughts on parts 9 and 10? They were very interesting, especially, like you said, after 8. Um it felt more like normal, you know, quote unquote, normal TV in a sense. Um, I'm continually impressed by David Lynch's mastery of pacing because 10 especially was very slow, but at the same time, still enthralling. And when I sort of thought back on it, there was still so much there, even though it just felt, um, felt a lot longer than some of the other episodes. It's interesting you say that because I believe part 10 was the, the shortest episode yet. It was it clocked in at like 52 minutes, uh, you know, we'll, and we'll get into the specifics of that, but the, the pacing I think is really interesting that you, you bring up that point because my, my thoughts leading into this and specifically comparing uh, Twin Peaks with, Game of Thrones and, you know, Game of Thrones is back. There's been a few episodes of that. And uh, I generally will watch Game of Thrones and Twin Peaks back to back and Game of Thrones, which you have never watched, but usually has this rising action, right? So the, the episode starts and things happen, like little things happen and then medium things happen. And then a big thing happens or a big thing is hinted at very, you know, simple three act with a climax and then set up some stuff for the next episode. Twin Peaks, there's like the, the, the rising and falling action of the show just happens willy nilly. Like shows will, shows will open with scenes of like humor or crazy violence or something really scary. And then that'll be followed by just 20 minutes of jokes about taillights Right. So, <laughs> so that's why like the pacing is so interesting because at any given point, all hell can break loose or a really funny scene can some, or, you know, really, really horrifying thing can happen. So the pace is always steady, but it's the emotional resonance of the scenes that go up and down unpredictably, which is really fun. Mm -hmm. I think also that's what makes some of the some of the violence and some of the horror scenes, especially effective because usually they're pretty sudden. And I think because there's that lack of, of very explicit rising action, I know that we've talked about sort of that feeling of dread, but since it's not spelled out for you, um, 
it always at least takes me by surprise like every time and spooks me so absolutely all right so let's get into part nine the tagline of this episode is this is the chair we open in part nine with bad Cooper walking down the road. He looks a little rough. <laughs> to yeah. say the least. Yeah. But, you know, he's walking. He, he's probably, uh, after all the, the digging that the woodsmen were doing to him there, he's probably a little bit better off than we thought. But he uh, he he makes his way to the farm. I assume this is the farm that, that he and Ray were speaking of in part eight. Uh, we meet, uh, Chantal is there. We've met her before, um, was staying in the, the hotel room next to him and Daria and her husband, Hutch, uh, played by Tim Roth. So we've got Tim Roth and, um, the actress's name is escaping me. Well, I don't know why it's escaping me. She was, they were both recently in, uh, uh, twin uh, in Quentin Tarantino's movie, the hateful eight. Also as sort of like psycho killers, which is pretty fun that they're reprising that style uh, role in this. But they they seem to be bad Cooper's right hand, right hand men and woman. Uh, they're, 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 they do his bidding. They're, uh, they're listening to him, kind of figuring out what happened, uh, giving him a place to stay, some clean phones, some weapons. He's going to go get back on the road. Uh, from this scene, we jump to Gordon Cole's plane. Uh, are there any particular... I, I really like his plane. I, and I don't know if you can guess the, the specific aspect of it that I like, but uh, what, what's your opinion of the, the plane that they're in? Because he and Tammy and Diane and Albert spend a fair amount of time in this plane uh, in this episode, does it, anything about it stand out to you? I like that they actually have, so they sort of have like the cockpit and then sort of a small standard plane area. And then behind that, where we usually see coal, there's that area with like actual real tables yeah. on a plane, which is a cool thing. And wood paneling is my, is the, the touch <laughs> that I like. It seems like a... If if Gordon Cole were going to have a plane at his disposal, it might as well have wood paneling. <laughs> right. So they're on the plane together. They learn of, uh, they get a call from the Pentagon regarding the body of Major Briggs. Uh, that we, we learn that sudden news. Then we flash back to Dale on the farm. We're kind of cross-cutting between these, these, two, uh, these two things here. Um, back to Dale on the farm, dealing with Chantal and Hutch. He's giving him some, some commands. He's talking about, he needs a, he needs a cell phone. All, you know, same, same kind of deal. He's going to hit the road, go back to the plane. Um, this is where Gordon has to convince Diane to go back to Buckhorn or to go back to South Dakota to check out Major Briggs's body. And in the same moment, we find out that, that Cooper has escaped Cooper has flown the coop. Ha ha ha. <laughs> Zing. Um, then finally we get start to get some, some movement forward in this episode. Quick shot back at the, the farm. Cooper calls his guy in Vegas. Who I believe his name is 
I have it written down here somewhere. The guy who sits at the desk all day. His name is Duncan Todd, uh, the one who saw the red box on his uh, computer and the, the, the black dot on the, the piece of paper. Uh, checking in to see if Dougie is dead yet. Dougie is, you know, you, you can't get Dougie. There's no, <laughs> there's no way to get him. Um, and then Cooper commands Hutch and Chantel to kill the warden. Uh, where did they tell them? Where did he tell them to kill the warden? Do you remember the at work, at home, or on the way? <laughs> on the way. <laughs> Very specific. Before they go, Chantal gives. Dirty Cooper, a parting gift. Did you catch the, what he gave, what she gave him? Yeah, as, as Hutch called it, a wet one. Oh, that's, yes, the kiss. But <laughs> yes. she also had something in her pocket. <laughs> yes, the wet one, pretty gross. Yes. <laughs> it was like a, like a bag of Doritos. It was or a bag of like Cheetos. A Cheetos. <laughs> <laughs> Which he looked at like with a, like, like he was really looking forward to getting down on those Cheetos later. <laughs> like when you're a cross dimensional agent of evil, you still can't resist some cheddar Cheetos. Absolutely. <laughs> if I can, if I can jump back to the plane super yes. fast. Um, so when Cole is trying to convince Diane, it seems like the, the, um, the magic words that convince her to go with them are blue rose which is a reference to whatever whatever this case was and a reference to, in part three, when we saw Major Briggs's head sort of slide by and say Blue Rose. Um, so I'm, I'm interested to learn more about that. Yes, and if you, uh, if you go back and you watch Fire Walk with me, you learn a little bit more about the Blue Rose cases. That's a, uh -huh. a, a little bit more of an explicit idea of something that seems to be uh, Cole's version of the X-Files. Uh, I see. The special cases that, that he has purview over. Nice. Yeah. Yes. So uh, from here, we visit the Las Vegas Police Department. Uh, this is the aftermath of uh, Dougie's Saving the day after the attack by Ike the Spike. The policemen are interviewing Bushnell Mullins, who's really going to bat for Dougie. Like he is he is Dougie's number one fan at this point. And uh, so talking a little bit, we get some key details about Dougie in this scene. Um, one comes from Bushnell Mullins, which do you remember what he he told the the police officers about. He told them that, that Dougie had been in a car accident and that ever since then he's had some some signs of being not quite all there. Yes, exactly. So some insight as to why Dougie's behavior is accepted by a lot of people close to him. Uh, still no clarification on why the world at large seems okay with him <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> sort of bumbling through, but... Nobody's asking questions. Some people think no, he's been in an accident. Uh, the other thing we learn after the after uh, Mullins leaves the cops' office is like I like how they sort of watch him walk out of the office slowly, and then as soon as he's gone, they start to like go do their cop talk. Um, but we learn that Dougie Jones did not exist before 1997. Right. Yeah, nothing. nothing. No, 
no paper trail of any kind. One of the detectives suggests witness protection, um, which, I, I mean, I don't think that they're going to find anything there either, but um, I'm curious what they will find on him as they do get a, a piece of evidence in the next scene. Yeah, tell us about what uh, what they, how they, their scheme to to learn more of De- about Dougie. Right. Well, so the one of the detectives, Fusco, has the idea to give him a cup of coffee and basically get his his fingerprints and, you know, mouth or whatever off of that cup of coffee because everyone knows by this point that Dougie cannot resist coffee. So Exactly. Exactly. So one thing that I like about this, this is the most time we've spent with the Fuscos just on their own. And two things stand out. One, they they really love each other's company. You know, they got some inside jokes. They, you know, they the the two I'm gonna call them the two outside brothers, like the the they're standing on the outside. David Keckner mm-hmm. is one, the other guy, and then there's the biggest of the three, and his job seems to be to laugh at everything the other two say. With the most ridiculous possible laugh. Yes. Yeah, this really like almost like rodenty snicker <laughs> high-pitched uh very you know very yeah i can't i can't think of the the way i want to describe it but it's not a it's not a sound a man that large should be making right um, right it you know it reminds me i have a friend with two of those tiny little puffball dogs and that's what <laughs> that laugh reminds me of <laughs> exactly the other thing i like about them is that they seem to be good police officers. Like they're they're kind of bumbling in a you know it, an outward appearance, but they you know they they enact this scheme to get Dougie's mug and they sort of execute it without a hitch, without having to talk to each other. They sort of you know the guy has an idea and they're ready for him when he comes back with the evidence bag. They're you know they're moving quick, they're sharp. Uh, you know the Las Vegas homicide department or whomever you know these these detectives work for they seem to have found a good thing with the detectives fusco indeed indeed uh last scene in the uh, las vegas pd we get another long shot of dougie staring off into space uh, a number of things happening all at once he sees the american flag a young woman walks by wearing red heels uh and then he's, you know, he hears God bless America playing in his head. And it's just another of these tantalizing moments where you can, as the audience, you just sort of like, oh, Cooper's in there. Mm-hmm. The, 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 there's things in the world, totems, items, remember, you know, memories, things that, that are in there for him. Uh, and then he's, his attention is also drawn to an electrical socket. And you hear, you hear that electric cl- crackling again. So. Yes, yes, which uh, I thought um, reminded me, of course, of part three, where he gets sucked through the electrical socket. Exactly, exactly. So wrapping up uh, the police department, we stay in Vegas. We cut to Ike the Spike in the hotel, polishing off his bottle of Jack Daniels. Uh, clearly something has happened you know, we know what's happened, Ike. He's he's failed in his mission, but he's also now buying cheaper whiskey 
He started with a bottle of bullet bourbon. Now he's drinking Jack Daniels. So he's clearly taken a step back. Maybe he's not, you know, he knows he's not going to get paid for the job that didn't go through and he's, you know, tightening his budget a little bit. Um, maybe he just needed something in a pinch, but his, uh, his whiskey choice has, has suffered due to his current lot in life. Uh, he makes a phone call. I assume he's making the phone call to the, the fella sitting behind the desk in Vegas. The, I've already forgotten his name, even though we said it earlier, Duncan Todd. Uh, he says JT, I believe on the phone. Mm-hmm. Um, but maybe he uh, was calling Justin Timberlake. Oh, maybe, <laughs> maybe but man. Yeah. I'm sure. I'm sure Ike the Spike has a pretty, pretty loaded Rolodex. <laughs> You're a, a hitman, possible agent of the black lodge. Uh, can, and also can, musical superstar. Yes. You never know. <laughs> <laughs> He's got some featuring roles on uh, uh, JT's albums. <laughs> so, uh, but he he's he's going on medical leave. Job didn't. No cigar, I believe, is the message he gives. He's going on medical leave, and as he walks out of his hotel room, he is ap- apprehended. And to end the scene, maybe this will end our time with like the spike. It's very possible, but. We've had we had one moment with this brutal killer where after he murders three women and women in office building, he shows true remorse and grief when his spike is no longer a spike. And now in this moment, when he's apprehended, what what sort of noise does he make? How would you describe it? Oh, it's like um, it's like the air going out of a balloon. (laughs) Yeah, a little a little gulp and a squeak. Yeah, yeah. So the jig is up for Ike the Spike. Move along to, we're going to spend a lot of time in Twin Peaks now, which is great because we haven't been there yet this episode. Uh, Twin Peaks, our first scene in Twin Peaks in part nine. Andy and Lucy shopping for a chair. <laughs> this was very cute. I uh, I really enjoyed this scene. <laughs> So they they both want, they've they've agreed upon the chair and there's two upholstery selections for the chair. They can pick beige, they can pick red, and why don't you explain their back and forth a little bit? So they're both sitting within the same office space, but at, at two separate desks. And um, Lucy wants the beige chair, and Andy wants the red chair. And so Lucy gets up and sort of marches over to Andy and says, Andy, I really want the beige chair and marches back to her desk. And then maybe a couple seconds later, Andy gets up and marches over to Lucy and says, and Lucy, I really want the red chair and marches back to the desk. And they they continue interacting in this fashion instead of just, you know, turning around and talking to each other like normal humans. Um, but yeah, I just, I found the whole interaction very cute. And then um, Andy eventually apologizes to Lucy and says, it's okay, you can get the beige chair. And so Lucy decides to buy the red chair. Ah, so sweet. And she's so, she's so pleased with herself. I love the little yes. ch- chair twirl she does, <laughs> yes. celebratory chair twirl. The, the thing that I liked about that is when they're telling each other what they want, they're not really looking at the other person. <laughs> yes. And they're sort of doing that thing that like 
that dogs do when they want to like snarl at another dog, but they're also afraid. So they just sort of like side bark at them. Like, <laughs> yes. <laughs> that's what I pictured there. Like they're, they're having this discussion and debate. And for whatever reason, like maybe they'll break if they look into the other person's eyes and sees that they're the love of their life. And, they'll, you know, maybe Andy will crumble and he won't, you know, he does crumble pretty quickly anyways. But um, yeah, it's, it's pretty interesting to see how they, you have to imagine that their their existence, and we get some another another look into their existence in part ten. Um, it just has to be so simple and good, mm-hmm. you know. Like there's they're, they they're not they're not people who worry about things, except maybe for Wally Brando. But uh, so from there, we visit a place in Twin Peaks we haven't been to yet. We go to Sylvia Horn's house, uh, and and. Johnny Horn, who from the original series is Laura's older brother, I believe older brother. Mm-hmm. Um, and he, not Laura's, Audrey's. Or Audrey, yes, excuse me. Audrey Horn's older brother. He has some sort of developmental issue, uh, you know, um, mentally challenged. And he's running through the house like a madman while Sylvia Horn is yelling, who let him out? You know, trying to calm him down. And he runs face first into a wall. Uh, we see the aftermath, a hole in the wall with some blood dripping from it and then his kind of slumped form on the floor and then a, a picture frame that's starred with the, the great waterfall outside of the great Northern hotel. Mm -hmm. Yeah. This scene really took me, took me by surprise because after the scene with Andy and Lucy, which is like very placid, this was incredibly sudden and incredibly quick. Yes. Yeah, no, no explanation, not even really an idea of where you're at. Like you would have to have knowledge of this show mm-hmm. to to understand what was going on, to understand who the character was um, and why this might happen to that character. Mm-hmm, exactly. And, and, you know, we know that when Laura, when Laura re- did not show up for her session with Johnny – uh, in the original series, because she was brutally murdered, uh, he's just sort of banging his head against the wall, wearing his headdress, mourning the fact that Laura is not coming uh, that night or any other nights to see him. Mm-hmm. Um, sticking in Twin Peaks, probably the high point of the episode, we visit the Briggs home. Mrs. Briggs, uh, as soon as she sort of gets wind of... Uh, what's going on? Bobby is there with Sheriff Truman and Hawk. She stops them. She puts up a hand and she said, you know, she knows why they're there. She takes them through this whole story. She offers them coffee. Uh, what's what's the story? What is the what is the what is the thing that she knows? She's been expecting this for a while. This visit from these three men. Um, what happens? In the- right. So right before um, right before he died. Uh, Major Briggs told her that this would happen and told her that one day Bobby would come to the house with Sheriff Truman, um, Hawk, uh, yeah, sorry, (laughs) with Sheriff Truman and Hawk and ask them about, um, about Cooper. And um, so she's, she's prepared for this event and she, goes over to a chair and says, this is the chair, which is, as you had mentioned, the tagline for the episode. 
says, watch carefully. And she presses a mechanism and then the silver, it's almost like a sort of an elongated bullet looking thing, um, slides out of the chair, which, which she hands to, uh, hands to Bobby. Yes. And so there's this, this sort of tense moment. And then there's this very sweet moment as Mm -hmm. Mrs. Briggs is telling this story, uh, and she's she's talking directly to Bobby at this point. Um, and one thing, like, I, I don't know. No one has been, no no previous character from Twin Peaks has been treated with as much grace as Bobby Briggs has uh, in this, this new iteration. He seems to be a good cop. Uh, you know, he seems to have has have righted the the wrongs of his past and and put himself on a good path, as his mother says. Um, but she, you know, she kind of speaking directly to him and says to him, you know, your father always knew you would find your way. Uh, you were you were a very different person from the person you are today, and it's very emotional to see uh, to see the effect on Bobby. And so after all this is said, and they've they've you know they've gotten the gift or whatever Major Briggs left behind for them. She says, now, how about that coffee? And like, everybody is so relieved mm-hmm, <laughs> to, mm-hmm. to be out of this sort of emotional maelstrom and, uh, and onto the coffee. Because as we know, if you're a member of the Twin Peaks Sheriff Department or some sort of law enforcement agent in Twin Peaks, you love coffee. Absolutely. Yeah, I, I completely agree with you um, about, about Bobby. He, I mean, he is one of my least favorite characters in this series, but I have so enjoyed every time he has been on screen um, in in the new series, and uh, I'm I'm excited to when we talk about Eleven because I think that he has some really touching moments there as well. Yes, yeah, good guy, Bobby Briggs. Who would have guessed? Mm-hmm. Who would have guessed? So uh, outside, we'll move out out back to Buckhorn. Uh, the FBI team has arrived at the morgue to see the body of Major Briggs. Diane wants nothing to do with this. She's going to wait in the waiting room. She fires up a cigarette, as she is wont to do, as we have seen <laughs> all throughout the episode. And she's immediately admonished by the Buckhorn police officer. You can't smoke here. And after a a really long pause, Amelia, you've had the honor of delivering... Diane's hammer lines. Diane says, <laughs> it's a fucking morgue. <laughs> and the best part is that nobody like it wins the argument, whether it's, it, it's good logic one, <laughs> but two, no one is going to combat this, you know, this woman, the way she's sitting through her platinum blonde hair, She's already smoking the cigarette. <laughs> She's no concessions, uh, nothing after that. Um, so she she stays behind. She checks her phone earlier. We didn't mention this earlier. Cooper sends a text message with a uh, pretty pink phone that Chantal and Hutch gave to him. the The text of the text message was around the dinner table. The conversation is lively. We don't know who he sends it to. Uh, but we see that message is now it's been sent to Diane. Um, does she know who it is? Does she know what it means? This is the first inclination. Like, do we 
can we trust Diane? Is she, is she okay? Um, so we've got that hanging over our heads. Uh, Lieutenant Knox of the team from the Pentagon, Cole and Albert, they go and see the body of Major Briggs. While they're going there, the Buckhorn PD detective uh, is filling them in on the things that have happened in uh, in Buckhorn. So first, Bill Hastings was arrested for the murder of Ruth Davenport. Later, his wife was murdered by her lawyer. And then Bill Hastings' assistant's car blew up. And Albert sort of tugs him, like taps him on the shoulder and says, what happens in season two? <laughs> Which is a fun callback to the season two premiere. So end of season one of Twin Peaks, Cooper gets shot. Mm-hmm. And everything happens when he is laid up from getting shot. And there's a scene where Harry Truman is relaying all this information to him of all these things. Like one of the Renault brothers died. This happened, that happened, the mill burned down <laughs> all this craziness. And, you know, Cooper says to him, like, how long was I out? Right. <laughs> so pretty, uh, pretty fun thing there. Um, they're looking over the, the body of major Briggs, which should be a pretty momentous thing. Like Cole, like, you know, they, they clearly they're in the know with, what major Briggs is all about, but the, the show stopping scene is Albert and Constance got themselves, yes. got themselves a little love connection. Yes. A little pun love connection. Yes. yes. He's the marble champion of the sixth grade. <laughs> How'd he lose his marbles? The dog ate the cat's eye, like <laughs> just sort of zipping back and forth sparks. Like you could, if you couldn't, you know, if this show wasn't all about electricity and hearing the sound of electricity, uh, you, you certainly would have heard it in that scene between Albert mm-hmm. and Constance. Uh, we also learn in this scene that uh, Bill Hastings has a blog, searchforthezone.com. It's a real thing. We'll talk about that in a little bit. Uh, but before we do, we're gonna vi- we're gonna go back to Twin Peaks and the the sort of the. Every episode now, we get a little snapshot into the life of Jerry Horn. This may be the best one so far. Uh, he's immobilized <laughs> in the forest. He's, he can't move. And why can't he move, Amelia? Because his, his foot, well, his foot says to him, I am not your foot. Um, <laughs> I and I would just like... <laughs> I mean, I would just like to to preface this where I never want to be so high that I am terrified of my own feet. Yes, you're, <laughs> you know? you're fighting. You're yeah, you're fighting your body. <laughs> right, your body exactly. has agency of its own at that point. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> right, so he he is terrified of his foot, um, and so after his his foot or not foot speaks to him. He attempts to touch his foot and then he attempts to pull his foot off the ground, which, of course, winds up with him like on his back in the middle of the forest. And it's it's really fun, humorous direction in that scene because it's a close up of his face and then it's a point of view shot of his foot and a close up of his face and a point of view shot of his foot like this eternal struggle going back and forth. And then when he finally gets the upper hand, we get the really wide shot so we can see this. 
you know, see this guy pulling himself and sort of causing himself to go ass over tea kettle <laughs> in the forest floor. So I think, doesn't he yell something like, you can't fool me? Yes. Yes. I, I always, I, 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 I feel like he's a, an avatar for something in this show. Like we should be listening to the things he says while on his, his, his journeys. Um, there may be some wisdom in his words, even if we've yet to suss out uh, what it is. But yeah, I love my, I love my Jerry Horn check-in. I look forward to it every week. I think in some ways, maybe he's, he's a bit like Log Lady was in the original series where she says some, some stuff that's pretty bananas and you laugh at it initially, and then you end up revisiting that information in a more serious light. Absolutely. Twin Peaks, we go back to the sheriff's department, to the conference room. Uh, Chad is having lunch in the conference room. <laughs> no one likes Chad. <laughs> I like that Hawk won't even open the door for him until yes. like, Chad has to plead with him. <laughs> Also, who who makes two microwave dinners for their lunch? <laughs> Come on, Chad. Like, geez, that's a lot of sodium, man. Oh man! Well. So they 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 boot Chad. He, he clumsily takes all his food out of there. Um. The uh, before that, when they it, it must be lunchtime at the Twin Peaks Sheriff's Department because Lucy, when they all walk in, Lucy's eating her lunch and she's very quick to say, "I'm not here. I'm on my lunch break." And she puts her hands up. Yes. So it's like a, a force field of lunch hour. Yes. I, I got. I give. I'll give her credit though. Like work life balance is really important, and sometimes you just need to tune out, have a half an hour to have a sandwich. And not be bothered. And if you can't eat lunch in the conference room, you're probably eating lunch on your desk. So you got to stick up for yourself. Absolutely. Yeah. So they go into the conference room. The Hawk and Truman are sitting at the table. And Bobby is sort of leaning with like a like a little bit of panache. He's mm-hmm. leaning up against the wall. He says to Hawk and Truman, I know what that is, referring to the the bullet. Uh, like thing that they received from Mrs. Briggs and, you know, asks if he's having Truman asks if Bobby's having some fun with him. And he says, I am, you know, Bobby's just, he's in a great mood. Like he's gotten some confirmation again, that his father loved him. He knows the answer to the solution that no one else would know. You know, he's, he's just, he he's on top of it. He leads Sheriff Truman and Hawk back outside and shows them the the mystery, how to solve the mystery of this device that Major Briggs gave them. How what's the solution, Amelia? So he takes the device and he throws it against the ground as hard as he can, and then runs after it, picks it up, and holds it up to Hawk, and you hear this humming noise, uh, which reminded me of the mysterious hum at the Great Northern. Um, and they're waiting and they're listening to it sort of ring and hung hum and then it stops right when it stops bobby throws it again and when he goes to pick it up the second time it has now opened yes and inside we get two small little pieces of paper there's a there's a ton of information on this these these small pieces of paper so kind of rapid fire there is a date the date is two days in the future i believe and the day after that so october 1st and october 2nd for the first time, we're sort of grounded into a calendar. 
uh, when these things are taking place, at least in Twin Peaks. We'll get to like some sort of date weirdness uh, in a little bit. Um, at that, there's some symbols. There's like two mountains. Over one of the mountains is a red circle, kind of looks like the sun. Over one of the other mountains is the, uh, to me, it looks like like an ant. The the symbol that Cooper had on his ace that he showed Daria before he murdered her um, kind of looks like the the uh, the experiment, um, the thing we saw in the box and in the the uh, the midst of the atomic explosion in part eight. Uh, so and then a place called, you know, it, it, it's a it's a map or you're supposed to go to a place called Jackrabbit's Palace, put some soil in your pocket. Walk 253 yards, I believe, to the west, and something will happen. So our guys have a destination. There is a second page in the uh, in the tube, and Hawk does a little bit of uh, kind of some some uh, fast forward exposition for us as the audience. But he he's looking at the paper, and what does what does Hawk say as he's looking at the second page? So on the page, it's. Like it's like one of the printouts that Major Briggs showed Cooper back in the original series. And so it's a lot of gibberish, but on there are two intelligible words and they say Cooper, Cooper. Um, and Hawk says two Coopers. Yes, two Coopers. So Hawk is with it. Uh, he's he's picking up what the the people of Twin Peaks are throwing down. A um, little bit of neat exposition there to sort of bring... You know, they the folks in Twin Peaks still have no idea what's going on in Buckhorn and Vegas and all over the world. But there's you still I still get the feeling that that's where the story is going to end. Right. Mm -hmm. It sort of has to in a way, I would think there has to be, you know, there's a lot of things to be resolved in Twin Peaks. Um, so from there, from the sheriff's department, we jump back to the Buckhorn Police Department Really fascinating scene. Not a lot of information, but the the performances in this scene are, are fascinating. It's it's one of my favorite shots of the series so far. So it is Gordon Cole, Diane, Agent Tammy Preston. They're standing on the steps of the police department. Diane is smoking. Albert or not Albert Gordon is clearly clearly coveting her cigarette. Just like zoom, like locked in on it, and and Tammy is very uncomfortable. She's mm -hmm. fidgety. She's she's moving around a lot. She's clearly like she and Diane don't get along. But it, it's interesting. I think my my interpretation of the scene was that Tammy is very comfortable being Albert's sort of. I keep keep getting this up. Being Gordon's object of affection she likes the she likes the attention she gets from him and you know the camera and david lynch and gordon cole cole all seem to have a lot of affection for tammy i would completely agree yes you know I, i've gone so far as like it, it, she's almost an object of lust for you know that triumvirate that that they're all all three of them are the same people the the camera lynch and cole um but in this moment she's not in his in his field of vision and this seems to just really make her uncomfortable you know she's just very fidgety um maybe that that particular actress is christabel's maybe her best performance to date um she does have another big scene coming up in this episode that's pretty spectacular 
Um, but they have a smoke. They, uh, Albert comes out, calls him back in. The next scene is the interrogation of Bill Hastings by Tammy. So this is a pretty big, uh, pretty big moment. Uh, what a top notch, top notch performance by Matthew Lillard in this scene. Yes, like absolutely. He is a shattered man. He's telling his story. He is sobbing. He sort of like comes out of the sob and Tammy's getting some information about what happened. They met the major. They were searching for the zone. Their blog is the search for the zone.com, which is a real thing. You can visit the search for the zone.com. One uh, cool thing. Go check it out. In the early days of the search for the zones.com when it launched, there was a set of coordinates and this set of coordinates is, I guess, corresponding to the place that our heroes visit in part 11. So we won't say too much about it, but in the real world, this set of correspondence was like a private farm and people <laughs> took these coordinates and they were making a pilgrimage to this private farm. Oh no! <laughs> <laughs> so the owner of the farm, you know, gently requested that they remove the coordinates of his private property from this very public website. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but this, this whole, this whole scene, uh, Bill positively identifies the major, um, circles his picture signs and dates. I mentioned earlier the dates. If you go by Sheriff Truman's expression that October 1st is two days from now, you would think it'd be September 29th. When Bill signs the picture, he, he dates it. And it's really hard. It could be 920 or it could be like 929. So it's 920 with like an extra flourish on the zero or it's 929 with regular handwriting. But it's it's not clear. This is one of those things that like the Internet would probably tear its hair out over. I haven't mm-hmm. given it too much thought, but I was like, oh, this is the this is really the first time that the show has grounded us in any sort of date or time or, you know, uh, reality that we can we can draw from. Uh, but Amelia, if you'd like to tell us a little bit about, uh, about Bill's demeanor, about the things that he says, um, you know, what was your, when you're watching the scene, what are you thinking? Yeah, Bill, Bill is a mess. Bill is like full on ugly crying. You know, there's, there's the tears and the snot and the, he is like beyond, you know, beyond pulling himself together though he tries and as a foil to that tammy is cool collected extremely kind to him um but so she asks him about she asks him some questions about ruth and about their blog and what they were doing and uh he tells tammy how they had gone to this specific location that ruth had written the coordinates for this location on her arm so that she wouldn't forget And when they went to the location, there were lots of other people there and they saw the major, but then everything happened fast. I think that he said that, uh, you know, the major's head started to levitate and the groups of people took the major away and then Ruth was killed and and so he was returned to his home at that point. Um, Let me see. And at the end of this is this extended 
extended uh he's very upset that he never got to go to the bahamas with yes Ruth. he wants and to so go scuba diving he wants to go scuba diving and drink mixed drinks on the beach. Soak up the sun. <laughs> yes, 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 yes. And he's extremely upset about this. And uh, after after Bill's sort of sniveling, we cut to a very close shot of Albert's face. And he makes the cutting remark of fruitcake anyone. <laughs> Albert. Just brutal. Yes. No, no time for Bill. <laughs> Uh, Bill's performance in this scene, uh, very reminiscent of uh, the Leland Palmer scene in season two of Twin Peaks, where he sort of he he comes to uh, after after doing all these terrible things to this realization that he has done all of these terrible things, uh, you know, just a, just a shattered, broken dude, um, clearly uh, manipulated by forces far greater than than either of those men could handle. Uh, to round out the episode, we, uh, we stick to Twin Peaks for the rest of the episode. A uh, quick shot, uh, the Great Northern, uh, Twin Peaks' most uh, handsome middle-aged couple. Uh, ben and Beverly, again, are looking for the hum. It's still, still hanging around. Uh, they're getting closer. Beverly clearly is, is willing to uh, accept Benjamin's advances, but he just he can't do it. He, 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 you know, for, for whatever reason, Ben cannot, cannot do it. Can't pull the trigger. Beverly tells him, Ben, you're a good man, which is a strange thing to hear about Ben Horn, but, uh, you know, seems to be, uh, he seems to have changed his ways. Mm -hmm. And there to wrap the episode up, we head to the roadhouse for uh, two performances, uh, we, we start with uh, Hudson Mohawk doing a one-man uh, sort of a DJ set. Crowd is really whipped into a frenzy. Then we visit a booth in the Roadhouse, and we meet uh, a couple of characters uh, we haven't seen before. I know the one without the rash is called Chloe. Okay. The one with the rash is she's played by Sky Ferreira. Uh, I don't remember her name, but uh, she's got a terrible rash. <laughs> oh, God. Yeah. She's really in there. She's working that rash. And it's just like, <laughs> you know, I, like I, I like to, I like to scratch a good mosquito bite now and then. But man, if you uh, if you got a rash like that and, and like her pal was like eating the peanuts from the dish next to, you know, I'd yeah. like is yeah. Yeah, it was, I hope that you didn't watch that scene with headphones because that was enough oh, I, for me without headphones. Oh, I did. There's oh. a lot of uh, a lot of skin digging yeah. going on there. She's she's really getting in there. Um, you know, the the rash maybe means something. Like it's on her left arm. That's the same arm that that Mike lost. Uh, we know there's this new drug, Sparkle, in Twin Peaks. Maybe this is an effect of the drug. Clearly, you can tell from this character's teeth that she's uh, she's uh, into some some debilitating shit <laughs> with uh, the the source of her chompers. After their their conversation, we end part nine with a return. Uh, Arvar Simone is back. Uh, quick quick set change from the sort of dancey Hudson Mohawk set to the dream pop of Arvar Simone to end part nine. This is the chair. All right. All right. 
Okay. Should we, should we forge on? I think so. All right. Part 10. The tagline for part 10, Laura is the one. Now, in part nine, we talked a little bit about the the unpredictability of this show. You never know what the tempo of any given scene is going to be, what the emotion that scene is going to draw out. This this episode starts with a bang. Mm-hmm. Uh, we start in Twin Peaks, a locale we've never seen before, but becomes pretty clear to us what it is uh, right away. We are at Miriam's trailer. Miriam is the pie-loving customer of the double R. She's also the witness to Richard Horn's hit and run. Uh, very clearly in the hit and run scene, they make eye contact. She gives him a glowering look. Uh, Richard is there to take care of business. Uh, Miriam is a loose end. Miriam says to Richard that, you know, I sent a letter to the sheriff telling him what I saw. If anything happens to me, I told him it would have been you who did it. And despite this warning, Richard rushes her, kicks in the door to her trailer, assaults her, and leaves her for dead. Now, all of that is done without seeing the actual assault. Uh, Richard runs in. We hear some sounds. Uh, Amelia, what is your... How, how are you feeling when you're watching this scene? I mean, it was scary. I was very, I was, I was very afraid for Miriam. And in some ways, you know, I have a hard time watching violence, so I don't think it changes much for me because I usually look away anyways. (laughs) But um, I don't know. In some ways it's better and in some ways it's worse because then your mind sort of imagines all the terrible things rather than just seeing it. I'm not sure. I'm not sure which is which is less terrible. Yeah, yeah. It's very. It's a very powerful scene. Um, y- you know, it goes. And, and one thing you can you can say about uh, about we're going to talk about our friend Chad here for a second. Ugh. When your best friend is Richard Horn, <laughs> nobody <laughs> likes you. <laughs> Chad sucks. Uh, after he he attacks her, when I said he left her for dead. He actually did leave her for dead. Uh, she's she is alive, but she's bleeding, unconscious on the floor. Her oven door open, gas pouring out of it, uh, mm-hmm. and a candle lit nearby. Yeah, um, good luck. Good luck, Miriam. Uh, Richard calls Chad, tells him that he needs to intercept this letter. Chad is not thrilled with having to do actual work, uh, even if it is of a criminal variety. Um from there, we stick in Twin Peaks. We visit the Fat tra- Trailer Park. Uh, one of the sweetest moments of the show so far. Uh, man, Carl, God bless you. Carl Rad, uh, played by Harry Dean Stanton. H- Harry Dean Stanton, is, he is 91 now. So he's probably 89 or 90 when he's filming these scenes for Twin Peaks The Return. Uh, but he's just sitting outside in his, his lawn chair playing a beautiful little ballad on his guitar. He has a fabulous voice. Yeah, he really does. Like, I I sort of feel that if you were around and in that place, if you were in the Fat Trout trailer park and you heard Carl out there with his guitar, like, you'd probably just go and, like, kind of hang out. Just want to be near him. Uh, His song is cruelly interrupted 
by a red coffee mug being flung through a window. Uh, we can hear some fighting inside the trailer. Uh, upon my first watch, I, I wasn't clear who was fighting in the trailer. Um, but we hear uh, Carl's assessment of what's going on in the trailer is it's a fucking nightmare. <laughs> uh, we then see inside the trailer and it is it is Steven threatening his wife, Becky. She's clearly out of his mind on some sort of narcotic. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's very boogery and yelling and he's threatening her. He's accusing her of doing things. Um, so, you know, start off this episode with some really, uh, just some mediocre ass dudes mm-hmm. mistreating women. Uh, clearly Lynch has some, uh, some things to say about the younger generation, <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, and their, uh, their, their place in this world. Um, but another, you know, so, so again, to go back to this idea of pacing, we're maybe five to eight minutes into this episode and we've had a scene of horrifying violence, a scene of just like sweet humanity, Carl in a song interrupted by another moment of violence and abuse. Mm -hmm. Um, so clearly we're right. We're on the, we're on the roller coaster. Um, and from there we cut to Las Vegas and now we're, I believe for the first time, we are in the home of the Mitchum brothers. Mm-hmm. We know them from the silver Mustang casino. They took Dougie took a lot of their money. They kicked the crap out of the pit boss who was working that night. Uh, and they, ha- they seem to have these three female companions, Sandy, Mandy, and candy. Uh, but why don't you tell us what's happening in the Mitchum house in this scene? So uh, one of the Mitchum brothers, I believe it's, Rodney Mitchum? Yes. Is that his name? Rodney and his brother is Bradley, right? Yes. Okay. So Rodney is like, you know, going, he's writing, he's doing a ledger or something. And we hear a fly. And as we will find out, Candy uh, walks into the room and completely intent on sending this fly to the afterlife. And uh, so she has this sort of red bandana that she's throwing at it and she keeps missing it. And then she gets closer and closer to Rodney, who's paying her zero attention. And uh, the fly lands on Rodney's face. And the closest thing available is the TV remote, which Candy grabs and smacks the fly as hard as she can, which is, of course, on Rodney's face. Um, So... He, I mean, he starts yelling. She starts screaming and crying. Bradley runs it, or yeah, and it's just everyone's yelling at everybody else. <laughs> oh yeah, can't I think? Can't like she's so distraught. Yes. I think she's like to wrap up. She says like, "How could you ever love me?" Yes, or, yeah, <laughs> forgive me. Like you know this this scene. So again, if we're tracking this episode, violence, sweetness, violence. Total non sequitur, hilarity. Mm-hmm. Yes, <laughs> and and not only that, but like it's a non sequitur of a non sequitur because we have, you know, these these three women in these pink getups. Like they've got no personality before this point. They're mm-hmm. just sort of they're sort of window dressing, and then now we see one of them move and and like she has a mission, she has a goal, she's she's living her life, and she smacks her 
her lover, her brother. Like who knows what, what these women are to these two guys. They've got, you know, <laughs> just, just, just a bonkers scene. Really hilarious. Like the way that she's moving and the sounds that her heels make as she's stalking this fly, like the, the, it's just so great. So funny. Like, you know, it's, it, your eyes are glued to it the whole time mm-hmm. and it does not disappoint. Bravo. Uh, we're sticking in Las Vegas here. Dougie's going to see the doctor. Uh, another pretty funny scene here. Um, Dougie is, is, you know, at the doctor, Janie's doing all the talking. Uh, Dougie takes off his shirt. Dougie looks great. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, Dougie looks like a million damn dollars. So, uh, which both the doctor and Janie, their, their appreciation for the physical change in Dougie is like, on both parts is really funny. They both kind of get googly eyes for him. Yes. Like the doctor, I think not from like a, I'm attracted to this person standpoint, but from like, man, this person is in perfect health. And as a, as a doctor of medicine, I appreciate that. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Meanwhile, Janie is like, he really has lost a lot of weight, huh? You can see, you know, for, for her, this is, you know, she's a very human character, but this is the first time that you can kind of see, um, like, like a softness to her, some emotion, like, like she's clearly attracted to Dougie in a way that she maybe never has been before. Mm -hmm. Uh, we return back to the Mitchum place. They see on the news that like the spike has been nabbed. This pleases them because they had a hit out on Ike the Spike, so it saves them buku bucks, I think is the phrase they use. I, um, I thought it was a wad of dough. A wad of a dough, yes. Of dough. yes. Was it a wad or a... Yeah. A whack of dough. That is it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. How much do you think a whack of dough is if you were going to... If somebody say, Amelia, in this bag, there's a whack of dough. <laughs> you can um, have it if you can guess within $1,000 how much it is. Let's see. Uh... A whack of dough. I'd go for. I'd go for like two hundred grand. Oh yeah, say. I was a little low. I was thinking like like a hundred. Okay. I think, yeah, I would, it's probably cost a lot of money to put a hit out on like the spike. He's dangerous, right? Right. Yeah. I mean, he's yeah. at his job. I yeah. mean, I feel like. Let's be known from here on out. A whack of dough equals two hundred thousand dollars. <laughs> um, so they're watching the news. Uh, great new, great news report gives us a you know really fills in a lot of blanks in the stories for the Mitchums. Ike's out of the picture. And then they learn that Ike was trying to kill Dougie. And so now they have a name, a real name. He's no longer Mr. Jackpots. Mm-hmm. Now he's Dougie Jones. They know they know who he is. That's the guy that fucked him. Uh, back to, in Las Vegas, to the Jones household. Dougie's eating cake. Janie's giving him the eyes. <laughs> She's playing with her hair. She's being really coy. Dougie, do you find me attractive? Uh, and Dougie just wants to eat his cake. Um, cut to their bedroom, and Dougie gets lucky. This is, I'll never, ever be able to unsee Kyle McLaughlin's arms in that scene and the look on his face. Oh, man. Yeah, I mean fantastic performance by both of them oh god it was just hysterical yeah probably the and 
despite its hilarity, it is very tender. Mm-hmm. You know, like it's like Janie loves Dougie. Like more and more every day. Mm-hmm. And that's it's sort of beautiful. And it also makes me kind of sad because like what happens when or if what if Dougie's not Dougie anymore at some point? Mm-hmm. You know, what if what if something and, you know, Cooper's conscious fully downloads back into him and he is no longer Dougie Jones? Not that, you know, Dougie Jones is a, is an empty hollow shell, but clearly he's having an effect on his wife and their relationship and, and the world around him, a positive effect that may all go away. Um, after their uh, their nighttime adventures, we are back in Twin Peaks. I uh, didn't know if we'd see Do- Dr. Amp again, but we do. And he's giving his nightly, weekly monologue. Uh, his favorite viewer, Nadine, is watching. Um, what do we learn about Nadine in this scene? We see uh, her storefront, which is titled Run Silent, Run Drapes. Isn't it great? <laughs> it's like, this is, I was really happy for Nadine. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's a beautiful storefront. It seems like she's got some prime property in the downtown Twin Peaks area. Like, you know, if I, I don't know thing one about drapes, right? Mm-hmm. But if I were going to put up drapes, I would want Run Silent, Run Drapes, Drape Runners. Absolutely. They're silent. It's a great name. It's got a great font. Like, you know, she's really, she's really done well for herself. Yeah. And she loves her some Dr. Amp. She has, she does have the, uh, the shit digging shovel. Yes. Right yeah. up. Prominently displayed. He also she also <laughs> says as he's watching his broadcast, he's beautiful. <laughs> or so beautiful. Yeah. Not just beautiful. Um we are quick trip back to Las Vegas. They're uh Janie and Dougie are going to take she's taking Dougie to work. She pulls Dougie aside to recount the their night pre the previous night. And really again, it's very sweet. She she loves Dougie and, and Dougie because he repeats what people say, loves Janie. Yes. Uh, back to Twin Peaks. Midpoint of the episode is usually when this happens. Jerry Horn's back. He's lost in the woods. He seems to have made up with his foot. The foot is no <laughs> longer bothering him. Um, and this is a pretty brief scene, but do you, do you remember what he yells in this scene? Um, you know, I don't. So he yells very uh, confidently. I've been here before. So again, I always like whatever he says, I always feel like, you know, have we been here before? Let's think about this. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and, and there is a lot of within Twin Peaks and within this new series, there are a lot of callbacks to the original series and Firewalk with me. So, yes, we have been here before. Uh, to the Twin Peaks Sheriff's Department. Chad's waiting for the mail, making some small talk with Lucy, <laughs> talking about uh, how she and Harry must just love a really nice day. Kind of trolling her. Not kind of. He is trolling her. Yes. He, he doesn't have a very high opinion of her. But Lucy seems to sort of love the attention. Right. While at the same time being completely skeptical of it. Mm-hmm. Like she's just towing the line of like, 
I'm, I like to tell these stories about how the, maybe the clock's not working, so we have no idea what time it is. Um, at the same time, very, being very wary of Chad and his his movements. Like as soon as as soon as the conversation ends and Chad walks out to intercept the mail, she walks watches him like a hawk. Uh, don't know if she saw him squirrel away Miriam's letter or not. Have to believe that she didn't because she didn't immediately. We haven't seen uh, seen seen the aftermath of that yet. Um, but Chad successfully steals the letter. Miriam's presumed death is all for naught. Richard Horn is saved. And speaking of Richard Horn, <sighs> yes, this is. There's been some distressing scenes in this show. I would wager that this is one of the most distressing to date. Uh, we are back at the Horn household. Uh, Johnny has recovered from his collision with the wall, but he is he is he is tied up in a way to uh, make sure that he can't hurt himself again. He has a uh, you know his hands are are in like big mittens. He's got a mouth guard in. I believe he's wearing a helmet. Mm-hmm. His his limbs are secured to the table, and sitting in front of a table is a uh, something with the body of a stuffed bear, the head of a upside down goldfish bowl with crude eyes drawn on it, and a light bulb inside. And what is this thing saying? Ad nauseum. Hello, Johnny. How are you today? Yes. <laughs> Hello, Johnny. How are you today? And this is a long scene. I, mm-hmm. One day I may go back and just count. The Hello the Johnny, how are you today? That. Yes. Yeah. Um, so this sort of relatively tranquil scene is interrupted by Richard Horn. Uh, Sylvia seems to know that she's coming, that he's coming. She meets him at the door, like before he's even in the door. Like it looks like she lives in maybe a nice gated community. So maybe they they were warned of her his pre or she was warned of his presence. Um he very sickeningly says like, hi, grandma, um, and then demands money. And when she won't comply, he threatens her. He threatens Johnny. He, he lays his hands on her. He's sort of like choking her, uh, demanding the code to the safe. Um, in, th- in all of this, Johnny uh, is clearly like trying to protect his mother and falls over on the floor um, in a in a very Lynchian touch, like the the image I'll never forget of Johnny and Flora is so like sort of his legs pedaling like a bicycle, like trying to to move to to protect his mother, and he can't because, as we mentioned, he's secured. Mm-hmm. Um, Richard Horn, man, scum of the earth, truly, truly, takes her money, takes her jewels, takes her fancy silverware. She offers him his purse, or offers her. His, her purse offers him her purse uh, when she barges in and he says, I will take your purse and dumps everything out, takes her cash, fills the purse with all her stuff. Why not just take the safe box, man? Leave the purse. Nope. Not, you know, not good enough. He's got to yeah. take everything. Everything. He's got just a, you know, yeah. What a, what a piece of shit. <laughs> um, and then he, he snarls the, the C word at his grandmother I, I firmly believe that I'm not a very spiritual person. You know, that's not true. Like, I, I'm spiritual, but I, I don't have a ton of belief in God, you know. 
Um, <laughs> but I do believe that if I were ever to use that curse word against either of my grandmothers, I would be immediately <laughs> struck dead by some sort of force in the universe. <laughs> Without question. Yes. Yeah. There would just be, it would be instantaneous. And wherever, whatever afterlife I ended up in or whatever my last thought would be, it would just be like, yeah, shouldn't have done that. Right. No. But sadly, no such justice for Richard Horn. Um, whew, that is tough. So from there, we go back to Vegas. We are in the office of Duncan Todd. He, learns that Ike the Spike has been apprehended and uh, he calls over to Anthony who is sitting at least a mile away in this massive office. Anthony is Dougie's rival uh, insurance agent uh, and he's given his marching orders to go to the Mitchums, tell them that Dougie is the reason that they lost their $30 million insurance claim and that he must do whatever he can to convince the Mitchums to kill Dougie, because if they don't kill Dougie, Anthony will have to kill Dougie. Uh, back to a brief scene in Buckhorn, Albert and Constance are on a date and they're having a great time. Gordon and Tammy are snooping on them a little bit, having a little, little chuckle about the, uh, the obvious connection between these two, Completely sardonic, wonderful individuals. Uh, from there, we move to Vegas. Anthony is visiting the Mitchums in their casino. Uh, another great candy scene. Um, candy is it, something is wrong with like something is broken within candy, possibly because of the the fly incident. Uh, she seems sullen. She doesn't like listening. Uh, she's acting kind of like a, like a hurt teenage teenager, mm -hmm. uh, but they said mean, she might very well be correct. Absolutely. <laughs> uh, but they send, they send candy out to the floor to bring Anthony in. Um, why don't you tell us what, what happens from here? So candy, after they shout at her a couple of times, she finally sort of wakes up and walks out of the room. We see her walk onto the floor um, by Anthony and the current pit boss. And she starts gesturing around the casino, um, gesturing, I mean, every, every which way, but she certainly isn't bringing Anthony back to the Mitchum brothers. And there's no sound. We can't hear her through the monitor. She's clearly saying something. But so the Mitchum brothers are just, of course, getting more and more frustrated by this. Um, and at one point, I think it's it's Bradley that says, did we ask her to tell her whole life story? And Rodney <laughs> says, for four fucking hours. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so they call the pit boss to, to sort of make her get a move on. And she, uh, at that point, brings Andy, or excuse me, Anthony to the Mitchum brothers. Yes. We learned that uh, after some, some prodding, they have to drag out that, that, the story that Candy was allegedly telling Anthony was about the air conditioning unit within the casino. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I mentioned to you in some of our, uh, our text messages around this, that I thought that the scenes with the Mitchum brothers were kind of duds uh, upon second viewing. I, I really like them. Uh, I, I think that 
with each subsequent episode. So this this arc with them sort of starts big time in this episode uh, and then continues on into part 11. As, as we mentioned earlier, we have seen the future uh, that the more time I spend with them, the more I enjoy their company. Mm-hmm. You know, they're they're clearly like scumbag killer mobster casino dudes. But at the same time, I'm so curious about their life. And uh, for a they couple have of a great like brotherly relationship. Yes. <laughs> yeah. It's it's almost reminiscent of Ben and Jerry Horn, um, but not nearly as decadent mm-hmm. or as sinister as those two guys seem to be like these guys just seem to like. They just seem to be really good at running a casino. And I imagine running a casino, you've got to do some pretty heinous stuff from time to time. But uh but yeah, they're 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 fascinating to watch. Uh the end of the scene, Anthony again and again tells them that that Dougie Jones is not their friend. In fact, that he's an enemy. Uh, he's out to get them all on his own. Uh he sets the stage. They were already pissed about Dougie Jones because of the Mr. Jackpots incident, but now they know that he's the reason that they lost $30 million in an insurance claim that the firm was ready to grant, but Dougie Jones said no. So their sights are clearly set on Dougie Jones. Mm -hmm. Uh, We visit the FBI team back in Buckhorn. We open up with uh, Gordon Cole drawing, just sort of freehand drawing. Um, What did you make of the, the, the thing he was drawing? It looked to me like uh, like a small deer with someone reaching towards the deer's antlers. Yeah, I think that's fair. It was not a great drawing, but still, you know, communicated exactly what you just said. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, sort of a crude drawing, but, you know, we, we know from Lynch and his practice of transcendental meditation and where he draws his inspiration from is that anything that pops into his head, whether it be a thought, a dream, an idea, a question, an answer, those are all valid. He doesn't he doesn't keep anything out. So I imagine that his direction to himself in this scene is draw something. And that's what he drew. That's that's what I'm guessing. Um also, in this scene, he's got like a little pile of technology next to his his drawing pad, and he has this like crude red box that looks very similar to the device that was in Argentina that Cooper communicated, Dirty Cooper communicated with, and then shriveled up into a little nugget of something. So perhaps Gordon Cole is also in possession of some sort of magic technology. Interesting. I didn't notice that. I was yeah. so so fixated on the drawing. Yes. Yeah, the drawing and this other little details like that's you know, second viewing is that's that's treasure hunting time. Mm-hmm. That's where you, you know, I'm I'm not looking down, my phone's put away. I got my notepad in front of me whenever I take a note, I pause it. Um before I start it up again, I scan the screen to see if there's any little hidden beats or treasures or, or items there. And I imagine that even with that level of care, I'm still missing these little treats and nuggets that, that Lynch hides for us. Um, the There's a knock at the door. Cole opens the door. And what does he see? He sees Laura Palmer. Uh, it's sort of a, an enormous semi-translucent 
an extremely slowed down clip of her uh, saying something or screaming. Uh, she's clearly in distress, though. Yes, clearly in distress. It's a haunting image. Whenever Laura shows up, you know, like she's she still has a role to play in this story, which is a wonderful thing. And I'm looking forward to see what that is. Uh, shortly after the image dissipates, Albert comes in, delivers the news that Diane received the all around the dinner table. The conversation is lively text message and that she responded to it within Albert's words, the heavily encrypted. They have Hastings tomorrow. They are going to the site. <laughs> so in this scene, we still don't know what Diane is up to. But they clearly have an idea that, you know, Albert says, uh, not Albert, Gordon says, I knew something was off when she hugged me. And so he seems to have some like keen perception. Is it because she hugged him? Is that the thing that, you know, that was off or something about her when she hugged him? Um, who knows? But the, uh, the mystery of Diane is, is unfolding before us. After that, we get a slow shot of Tammy walking down the hall. Again, she and, and Lynch and the camera seem to have uh, reunited, uh, come come back to each other after their her squirmy scene on the front steps of the Buckhorn Police Department. She's carrying a photo. The photo confirms a mystery from the very first episode. What is the photo that she has? The photo is of the mysterious... Um, place in the basement where Sam spent all those hours watching the glass box and Sam and Tracy met their untimely end. And instead of showing an empty box, this picture shows Bad Cooper. Bad Cooper. So is he the secret millionaire? Billionaire? I think I think he is. Yeah, I think seems, he's the one pulling the strings. Seems pretty definitive that this guy has a network of agents and criminals and skeezes all over the world to do his bidding. So big mystery off the board there. Cooper, dirty Cooper in charge of the box. Now, was it there to capture Cooper? Was it there to capture the experiment? Uh, if it was there to capture the experiment, they're going to need a bigger box. Because <laughs> <laughs> uh, yes, didn't work. A uh, couple quick scenes to end it. We are, in Twin Peaks for the rest of the episode, the Great Northern, Benjamin Horn learns of Richard's visit to Sylvia Horn of his attack of his grandmother. Uh, she and Ben are clearly not on great terms, although Ben does appear to be wearing a wedding ring. Mm -hmm. So it's interesting. Is is he, are they separated but still married? Is he married to someone else? Um, not Not quite clear, but she... She says that, she, you know, Ben's going to send her more money and he says he's not. And she's already called her lawyer. Um, she sort of digs at him for being concerned about Johnny before being concerned about her. Uh, clearly, uh, their relationship is, has not gotten any better <laughs> over <laughs> the years. Um, when the phone call ends, Ben says to no one in particular, you know, Beverly, will you have dinner with me? Uh, it's not clear if she's there or if she can hear him. Uh, there is no answer to the question. And it seems like he is, you know, he, he's a man uh, looking for 
some sort of distraction from the the you know the the tough phone call he just had with his his separated wife his estranged wife i guess is what i'll go with yeah and then from there uh twin Peaks sheriff's department hawk is on the phone with the log lady we finally get the tagline of the episode laura is the one so log lady is talking to hawk uh, the message that she's given him, if I if I remember correctly, is don't get distracted. Laura is the one. Uh, she is she whatever sprawling mystery is here. She is still at the heart of it, which I think is a pretty clear note to us, the audience, that we've got to keep our eye on the ball. Mm-hmm. And then, uh, Amelia, I know you really had some. Uh, affection for this week's musical performance. Why don't you uh, tell us a little bit about the performer and, and, and your, your opinion of uh, our, our visit to the roadhouse here. Yeah, I was, I was really impressed. Um, so this week's performer was uh, Rebecca Del Rio, who I had never heard of her before. She was wearing a great uh, black and white, chevron pattern dress which of course is just like the floor of the black lodge um so that was fantastic um and she gosh i was just she had the most spectacular voice that was a great performance i loved it it was really like it starts and it's, it's sort of slow and then it just builds and builds and builds and then some of the lyrics are in spanish Mm -hmm. uh you know the the camera work is really great because you can like, she has such an impressive voice and you can see her, like the camera's very close to her and like right on her mouth. And you can see, you you know, see how she creates these beautiful sounds. It's almost an intimate shot um, of her performing this song. Uh, Something that I noticed upon, uh, usually I scan the credit, the credits pretty closely at the end of each episode upon my second viewing looking at the credits, there is a person credited as simply musician and it's Moby. And so if you go back and you watch Rebecca Del Rio's performance, Moby is in her backing band. What? Yeah. Just kind of hanging out, you know, playing, Casual. I think he's playing guitar. Uh, he's, he's sort of behind her would be to uh, stage left. Um, if we're looking at the stage, so to the left, uh, pretty sure. Yeah. That that's Moby just as musician, not as himself, just as, you know, guy in a band. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. Pretty cool. So that's it. That is parts nine and 10 of twin peaks, the return. Uh, these were pretty normal episodes of television, about as normal as, as Lynch can get from a narrative standpoint. Um, you know, it, it's nice to be back uh, in that kind of flowing narrative after the the madness of part eight. But at the same time, like, I wonder if we're going to get more. I, I assume that there are more scenes. I don't know if we'll get another full hour of just straight insanity. Uh, but I'm excited with where things are going. The this sprawling tale is 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 sort of tightening. Um you can see the threads coming together. Uh, Amelia, do you have any, any parting thoughts for us? Um, I think you pretty much covered it. All right. Well, 
Again, that's parts nine and 10. That is going to wrap up both wonderful and strange this week. Amelia and I will be back soon with a description likely of parts 11 and 12 together. Uh, Hopefully shortly after part 12 airs, we will have that for you. And uh, I can't wait to do more of this with you. Yeah, sounds great. Excellent. We'll see you all next time. Cool, cool. Bye. Bye. Gentlemen, to Weevil.